Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Holt, and we have another great Q&A with Dr. Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. Um, and you may be thinking we look very similar now because I've got my head shaved and I have had a few comments in which we are now twins. Um, but luckily I have this big beard and massive eyebrows as well, which kind of differentiates me a little <laughs> bit from Mike. Um, and he is huge. If you haven't seen his full body, I definitely recommend you check out Instagram. We were just talking about how well his mass is going and 250 pounds of, well, still with ab veins, that's pretty insane. So he's huge. And at the moment, I'm like 165 pounds. So um, I am tiny, but at least I'm quite shredded at the moment. <laughs> quite shredded is an understatement. You're running out of body fat there. <laughs> quite literally, actually, running out of body fat. But this is good. Um, so we are going to get straight into the questions because I love when we get straight into the questions. I know you guys do as well, and so does Mike. Um, so the first question is asking about a situation in which someone is approaching massing and they're going for what they would consider a more aggressive approach. They're kind of sick and tired of going for the slow, eking out really slow lean gains. Um, maybe they've kind of gain-tained, as we've talked about before, um, and they've actually found that they've overshot. Kind of, They gain more than they were planning to gain, um, and they've kind of put on more body fat. They're edging towards that 15% body fat range um, that they upper end for a male in which kind of your insulin sensitivity, all these things kind of go to pot a little bit. Um, and they're wondering kind of what should they do? Are they better just to slow um, gain for the rest of kind of another couple of mesocycles because it's only been one and it's a bit short? Or would they be better off dropping in a mini cup um, to then continue massing after that? Yeah, so I think there's one very clear uh, answer in most cases, and that's the latter, mini cut. Because, so whenever you think, try to think through things logically, um, uh, it, it really helps, even if you have to write this on paper, which is an even better idea, or, you know, write it into an Excel spreadsheet. Think of the, whatever action you're thinking, and think of the benefits and think of the downsides. So the benefits of just massing slowly is, well, you know, slower massing just tends to not gain you as much fat and a higher muscle to fat ratio. So that's good. Um, it's also not super risky because if you get much fatter, you can quickly tell and you're not going to get much fatter anyway. It's not like you're going to be, it's not like the option of choosing to do another really rapid mass. And at the end of that one, you could be like 20% fat and be like, holy shit, what the hell did I do that for? So those are kind of the benefits. But the really big downside is essentially you're saying this. I am currently getting very close to a quite suboptimal physiological condition for massing, right? You're basically saying like, I'm pretty close to that borderline of where massing is not a good idea because it's going to gain me a lot more fat than it does muscle. And it's like, okay, and I'm going to gain mass during that time. And that's not a very good idea, right? Why don't you deal with the actual problem at hand, deal with it quickly, right? And it's not super difficult to do four week mini cut, even if things got really out of hand, six week mini cut. I mean, a six week mini cut, you can lose up to a percent of your body weight, you know, per week. And, you know, really, maybe that's not realistic. Then, you know, let's say three quarters of a percent. Then looking at something like, you know, that's 4% fat in six weeks. Like if you can do that, um, 
man, you're, you're, if you're approaching 15, you're back close to 10. And then, then after the mini cut, you start going up slow. Um, and just kind of a, uh, does that make sense, Steve? Do, do you, do you agree with that logic? Or? No, completely. Cause I mean, you've kind of put yourself in a poor position. To, it's kind of like teaching you a lesson. You, you, you didn't pay attention to your mass gain. You went too hard. You need to have this mini cut because you just you need to take right. because you're, you're not going to get any better from here. You're going to get negative. For um, sure. Feedback. For sure. It's not like one scenario, the fast mass didn't work. So you're going to try another scenario, the slow mass. It's, it's like that, except there's a, there's a slight kink in that. And the kink is the scenario that didn't work has left you in a position with some extra stuff to deal with, right? It, it's almost like, um, you know, you, you, like, your friend is giving away two dogs, potentially. He says, okay, I can't have two dogs in my apartment. I can only have one. I love them both just the same, but you can have one of my dogs, and you choose which one. And you're like, okay, well, can I have a couple of dogs? Can I have one of your dogs for a week and then the other for a week to see if which one I jive with better? And he's like, okay. So you take home a dog that's way too high energy for your apartment, and it just wrecks the place, right? Do you immediately, when you return it and be like, let me see the other dog, do you go, hey, let me see the other dog? No, you got to clean up your apartment first <laughs> to give the other dog a fair run, right? Because otherwise your place is a mess for a long time. And, and then when your place is a mess, like if your shoes are all out, even the more docile dog might start eating your shoes because he can just find them out in the middle of nowhere. If they're all tucked away where they're supposed to be, maybe he won't go looking for them, right? So it's one of those situations where it's, you got to deal with the mess you made first. So the body fat that's higher, you got to bring it down first, which isn't that big of a deal. And then you start going again into a mass. But a couple of words on that while we're on it. Because an extreme or a more extreme solution didn't work really well, that does not necessarily mean that the best solution is the opposite of that. So when people try a faster mass and they get fatter and they don't like it, some of them just immediately just reflexively go back to like gaintaining or just like super slow massing, which they can barely notice. And they're like, oh, I guess this is the only way to do it. Why not cut the difference between the two and try that out, right? So like that next mesocycle. So of course, you've done the big mass gaining mesocycle, you got fat, do a mini cut. And then after the mini cut, try something between the two. Like instead of gaining you know, 0.1% of your body weight per week versus 0.5% per week, try 0.25% per week, right? So if you weigh 200 pounds, that's like gaining half a pound a week, right? You know, gaining a pound a week was too fast, but that doesn't mean you have to gain like an eighth of a pound a week and it's the only way it's going to work. Try gaining half a pound a week and you might find that the middle run, because you already know the slow approach sucks and you didn't like it. And you didn't like the super fast approach. And, and, that, and I, I, could have predicted that because both of those approaches have serious downsides, right? That middle road that really tends to be kind of the best. So you pick that middle road, see how it goes. And if it goes really well, then geez, you know, you're off to a really good start. It's really important, I think, to continue to think logically in spite of setbacks and not just be jarred on set. You know, it's, geez, this is sort of the worst analogy I could give, but apparently it's the only one coming to mind. Like you go on a date or a couple of dates and they suck um and you're like fuck this i'm not dating anymore there's nobody good out there well geez that's the wrong conclusion because of course there's somebody good out there what are you what are you supposed to do after you get you know some shitty dates I mean, you can learn from the experience but a lot of times the only thing to learn is 
you know, not all people are for me. But like you already knew that since you were four years old, they taught you that in preschool, you know, like kindergarten, they'd say, you know, you can be friends with everyone, but some people are going to like more than others. And that's okay. You already knew that. There's no lesson there. So what's the thing? Just clear your mind and try to give the next person the benefit of the doubt, as opposed to being like, I'm not dating. Or, you know, the next person you go to is someone completely the opposite. Like, so for example, like this is ridiculous uh, analogy, but you know, like a, like a, a girl that likes bad boys or whatever. She like dates a guy who's like a criminal record. And he treats her like shit. And she's like, fuck, fuck this. I need like a nerd goody two shoes guy. Well, you don't like nerd goody two shoes guy. I tell you right now, that's going to go down the drain. So why don't you get a guy with like a bad boy streak that fundamentally takes care of all of his life's responsibilities and a scumbag. That's what you should be looking for. But like some people get burned on the one side and they just try to jump to the other side. It is very tempting. I really agree. Cause you know, after you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're super fat after a mass phase, you're like, now again and it's hard to just calm down and be like again after the mini cut but this time middle of the road and i think that's a much better approach than just flip-flopping way to the other end what do you think about that steve no i completely agree because in this situation where someone's been doing the the slow approach and it's not been really working they're effectively doing the same thing by going too fast and then having to cut back too fast cut back both approaches are kind of spinning wheels and like you said you find that middle ground approach and I actually think it is possible for people to feel this way and they get a bit discouraged with their results. And I think a lot of us have done both and found that neither works. And then you eventually find the middle ground, but sometimes it just takes some time. Like mm. you said, like you go on some dates, you get burnt, you go on some dates, they go really well. And eventually you find that date that is the one. Mm. Um, but I think it's good that people actually do experiment because I think a lot of people do just get stuck in their ways and they, they come to the conclusion maybe that, oh, I'm at my natural limits for muscle growth and I can't get any bigger. But actually, if you push the boat out sometimes, maybe you actually see some really good results that way. And um, I think a lot of the time as well, especially when people are going for this more aggressive approach, they need to be smart. So starting out really quite lean, like that 10, 8% body fat, if mm -hmm. you're going to shoot for that faster rate, because at mm -hmm. least then, you can shoot for it for a longer period of time and it's not just an actual waste. Yeah. On that note of the, I've reached my natural limit, man, you know, that shit kills me because it's so, there's this, a couple of years ago, I think this was worse or I was just more exposed to that side of things. I think right when, just before Greg Knuckles demolished the FFMI misinterpretations, <laughs> um, which was sorely needed, and he did a great job doing it. Um, and it took a while for his you know, article on that to disseminate. Yeah. But just before that and after the FFMI first came out, you know, with all good intentions, just people just ran with it. And the, but the, the guys that put it out, you know, like Eric Helms and those guys, like a month or two after they put it out, they were like, Jesus, we never meant any of this. <laughs> and people were like, nope, it's a diagnosis of steroid use. And also it means I can never get bigger than exactly this number. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but it's one of those things where people – the natural limit idea has caused so much strife, uh, so much misinterpretation in so many directions. One of the ways it caused misinterpretations, like you kind of just hinted at, is – Guys would train like three or four years pretty hard and they'd get into that realm where they're only gaining two to four pounds of muscle per year. And they would be like, well, I'm at my natural limit and that's it. And nothing else works. And I'm just going to give up or just keep, keep doing the same stuff. There's no point for me to try to get bigger or even worse. They start using drugs because they're like, well, this is as big as I get naturally. So, um, 
you know, funny enough, when we talk to, I talked to, I've been mentoring Jared Feather for a long time. When I first met Jared Feather, he looked really impressive. He was like, you know, a buck 70, buck 75 with abs, not contest shape, of course. And he was like, you know, 21 years old. And he had already been lifting for like six years at that point. Hard, right? And then what's happened to him since then? Completely drug-free. Last mass cycle, he was 210 pounds, I think, with 9% body fat. He looked like a fucking living god. And it was like, well, what did you do differently? We didn't, you know, we sharpened up his training. He learned a shitload of science. That was great. But did he ever gain like 10 pounds of muscle in one year? No, he just gained like three to five pounds every year since I met him. That's like 20 pounds now. So that's a different look. You know what I mean? And Jared could have easily have, because, you know, high school gains and all that stuff, 10 pounds a year. When that starts going and it goes down to that, you know, two to five pound range, some people just think you know, two to five pounds is approximately zero. So I got to take my shit to the next level. That's the craziest thing I ever heard of. I remember when I graduated high school, I weighed 160 pounds and my freshman year of college, I weighed 180 pounds, like reasonable look, not super duper fat, maybe like 15 to 20% fat somewhere. I mean, I eventually got up to a drug-free super fat 270 and, you know, in a, a reasonable conditioning, uh, like similar to the one I was at 180, I got up to about 220, like between 15 and 20% body fat. 180 to 220 is a huge difference. It took me like five years, but people just think as soon as it, you know, you have that first big slope and then it goes like this, it's not this, it's this. This is a lot different than that. And some people just go, oh, and we're done here and on to the next. And it's, it's, it's completely insane because like starting drugs early thing, I mean, drugs are toxic. They're bad for nearly every body system. They literally slowly leach your life away. You're taking the middle of your life or the ends of your life and putting it to the middle. You're like, I'm going to take from age 75 to 80, which I'm not going to be living anymore and living it more, you know, in the middle of my life. And Jesus, you want to do that as little as possible. And people are just like, eh, they just get frustrated with gains. And then, you know, obviously the, we don't have to get into this other one, but obviously, you know, calling everyone who's a little bit more muscular than average a drug user, it was hilarious. I remember that one time I posted, it, which in now in retrospect is hilarious, Jared at one of his contests at about 175 pounds, because his last contest, he was yeah. like 185 pounds. And I remember that I posted that pic. And I was like, drug free. And I had people messaging me privately, like Facebook friends being like, Dr. Mike, you don't really believe that he's natty, do you? And I'm like, he's 175 fucking pounds. Why wouldn't he be natty in there? That's just not a natty look. And I just want to be like, look, you've either not been training for a long time or you have the worst genetics of all time. I don't know what to tell you. There's people like walking around like this every now and again. Jared has unbelievable shape, but it just so happens that, you know, like, man, could you imagine what they, well, I actually, I cut myself off. I was going to say, can you imagine what they think of someone like Doug Miller? And then I'm like, of course they think Doug Miller's on drugs. <laughs> you ever say, you ever type in Doug Miller drugs in Google? It's just hours of reading from the lowest IQ people oh, of all God. time. It's hilarious. But anyway, back to the point of when, when your massing results slow down, that's very different from them stopping experiment with different strategies. Don't just give up on everything and stick to the basics. And you'll find that, look, you're five pounds more muscular the next year. And then five pounds more muscular the year after that. That shit adds up, man. And, and just think, you know, 20 pounds of muscle, that's four or five years of training is a revolution. It's, you don't even look like the same person anymore. 
give that some thought and, and try not to get discouraged with slower rates because look, some people are like, you know, if I'm not getting 10 pounds a year, it's not worth it. I just don't even understand that at all. Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the best natural bodybuilders are the ones who have been doing it the longest. They just always are because they've been consistent doing the right things and working hard. And if you love this sport, it's something you're going to be doing for life and you love lifting, you're going to be doing it for life. You might not notice the gains right now, but in years to come, you will. And even when you are in a gaining phase, sometimes you don't think you are necessarily gaining as much muscle as you are. But as soon as you cut it back, it all shows itself totally. and it's worth it. And you do get like the weird, especially the more you get end up going through these phases, you see new details when you oh, cut yeah. down as well, which... I find it absolutely fascinating, especially in the legs. It's just something that's unreal to me. Um, seeing different parts of my quad now pop, that I could never see happen before. Um, so it's exciting. So yeah, live up the journey. Totally. That, that detail stuff is really cool because um, every single cut, I'm like predicting to see the same details and I just see new shit. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like I've literally like exposed or grown vascularity I've never had. I remember like... I had one little itty bitty quad vein at the end of a cut when I was like 215, 220 pounds at the end of a cut. And I was like, whoa, cool. Now at the top of a mass, my shit is like riddled with veins. And it's like, you know, not too far apart body fat wise. And I'm like, what the fuck, how the hell did this happen? So when I cut down, it's just like all kinds of weird shit going on. I think, you know, they say like muscle maturity or whatever, um, it doesn't really start peaking until your late thirties, early forties. And that's how like, there's the ultimate example of that is John Meadows. Uh, you look at his body and you're like, what the fuck is wrong with your body? Is there some kind of like thing that you just lost all your body fat by accident? And it's not even just lean. It's like freaky. So that's uh, – everyone has uh, to look forward to that stuff. Have you noticed that? Like every time you, you do a cut, you just get freakier, not just leaner. just weirder. You're like, whoa, this is really trippy. Yeah, 100%. It's – I mean like I was saying in my quads that – I mean even in my glutes and in my triceps, like there's new areas where like they look cool before and now they're looking even cooler. And it's like, wow, this is – this is what I love about natural bodybuilding and actually competing and getting to these crazy body fat levels. Like it's places and things people don't normally see on their body. It's mystical. It's mystical, right? It feels like you're in a weird new like land, a weird zone. It's like a bizarre world. You're like, you don't even know like when I wake up tomorrow, what the hell am I going to look like? And the, yeah. the answer is usually weirder still. Right? <laughs> um, no, brilliant. And I think we've touched that question really well. And actually it kind of led into another question that someone had. And I'm not sure whether this is still something you're running, Mike, but in the past, I know you talked about you were you were running uh, shorter massing phases and then more frequent mini cuts to kind of bring down your body fat set point. So you could kind of sit around closer to stage weight um, and find that easier than when you were coming to competitions. Kind of like John Meadows is damn lean all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of just wanted you to talk more about that and what kind of your success has been like that. Um, cause obviously most people end up, they, they try and mass for longer and gain more muscle than they do fat, but you're quite advanced. And this was mm -hmm. a different approach for a particular reason. Yeah. So like when I started competing in bodybuilding, I was dieting, I had, I had no experience with really, really hardcore, super long diets, just kind of shorter ones. And, um, so the, before in the kind of a macro cycle before I did my first show in I think 2013, I came down from, I did one cutting phase that I came down 
from 270 pounds, I came down to 240 pounds. And then I went back up to 250 pounds. Then I went from 250 pounds down to 228 or so. That was where I did my show, completely out of shape. But, uh, you know, I was sort of lean by normal standards. And that diet, Nick and I did that same show together. We dieted for like five months straight or something really stupid and no refeeds, nothing, nothing. We just, it was just pure stupidity. And I just like basically developed a mini eating disorder from that and it was terrible. And then the next time I masked up, I only masked up to about 245 and then cut down again until like the high 220s, low 230s. And then again, only masked up to about 245 and then cut down again. So 245 was kind of my cap uh, for pretty much every single mass since then. And I would cut deeper and deeper every time. So at the last show that I did, I actually weighed in, I think at 218 before I stepped on stage. And that was my lowest stage weight yet, but I was way leaner, not even close compared to all the other stuff. And then so now that I'm like, you know, I had like an outline of glutes and stuff like that. And had I not gotten sick, I probably would have had some striations. So mm-hmm. we were down there in body fat at that point. So I really, uh, at that point, I really, uh, so, you know, I, my, my original plan was after this last show to do a mini mass, get up to 240 or so again, and then do a long cut this fall for a show, um, in uh, like the mid December, because there was a show that um, I actually uh, got a pro card in in, a, in another federation with my last show, and they wanted me to do their like big sort of pro show equivalent. Um, and I talked to Broderick, who was fully ready to do that, but Broderick had uh, and I had a really long t- uh, talk. I was actually in Australia giving seminars at the time. And I was going to say, I don't know what time it was in Broderick's neck of the woods, but he doesn't sleep. So it's kind of irrelevant. Um, (laughs) So um, I talked to Broderick and this was an idea that I had come up with to chat with him about, but he of course was way out of the game and confirmed all of it and explained it in more detail. The idea is this, it seems pretty clear and to him very clear that getting leaner when you're older is actually easier than when you're younger. And so like bodybuilders in their late thirties, early forties, they're the shredded to the fucking bone. They only die for like eight weeks to get shredded to the bone. John Meadows, perfect example of that. Like, however, the older you get, the harder it is to put on muscle. And it's not really for any hormonal cases, especially with special sports supplements. You can, the hormones are completely exogenous anyway. So it's kind of irrelevant, but it's mostly for the, because of the fact that you just have less wear and tear. You're able to train hard, able to be strong, and your health is better. So, um, or I'll put this this way: your health's not better; it's just less tainted, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if you've been super massive before and you've done a bunch of massing before, you you know, doing super hardcore massing phases when you're older, older, like forty, the blood work's just not going to look that great. But when you're in your thirties. 20s, it'll look better. You're more able to handle that sort of thing. And of course, the, the big thing is injuries, right? If you have hurt every single muscle on your body, 
the, the training volumes and the heavy weights of real hardcore massing, it's just not something, it's something best. It's, you know, people say, you know, so-and-so is a young man's game. Massing is more of a young man's game, but getting crazy lean is very much an old man's game. So him and I kind of talked it over. And what we decided was that I'm going to take a break from competing for basically this next kind of year and a half. So probably the next time I'll compete will be next December or next November or something like yeah. that. And we're going to do uh, mini cuts and masses for this time to really add not all of the mass I'll ever gain, but like most of it. So the goal is to try to get really gigantic over the next year. And the good thing is, is over the last couple of show cycles that I've done, I'm already within that lean zone that I don't have to worry. So right now I'm like 250 and I have abs and veins in my abs, which is amazing. So I don't, I don't have like this crazy excess fat anymore, which means I'm always primed to gain muscle. And now it's a really good opportunity for me to kind of gain the, the big amount. It's, it's almost like, you know, look at Big Ramey right now. How much bigger did Big Ramey get since the last Olympia? Like not much bigger, right? He just got leaner, more refined. Big Ramey, like two or three years ago, went through cycles where he would gain like 10 pounds every year or something. That's the equivalent of what I'm doing now so that I don't have to do that later. Later, I'll have most of my muscle mass and then we'll have the uh, sort of ability to just refine me show after show, balance some muscle groups versus others and go for crazy, ridiculous conditioning. The thing about that too is... And, um, you know, someone like Lyle McDonald drew out some of the theoreticals behind this, but a lot of other people have brought practical experience in the mix, and I'm, I'm certainly learning this myself. You can't serve two masters, e even in one macro cycle. You got to pick if you're going to be aiming to gain a lot of muscle in a macro cycle or getting to be as lean as you possibly can. Because like, if you want to gain as much mass as possible, you've got to really kind of stay between the 10 and 15% body fat mark, mini cut and mass, mini cut and mass. If you want to get as lean as you possibly can, there's never really a point at which you should exit above the 10% mark. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you do a show, you take a slight mass kind of maintenance, get to 10%, then start cutting again, do a show, get to 3%, right? Then get to 2%, you know what I mean? So, you know, being at 15% fat, X number of weeks out of your show is a real bad idea if you want to be super duper freaky lean. You know what I mean? So it's one of those like within a given macro cycle, is your job to really get bigger or is your job to really get leaner? And a lot of bodybuilders in the like the pro ranks have been doing this for a long time. They'll say, oh, you know, I've I'm taking the year off of competing to get much bigger. And when I was just uh, kind of just starting in bodybuilding, I just didn't get it. I was like, why not you just use the cut to potentiate the mass? But the cuts for stage are so deep they leave you in a pretty primed version to bring up muscle mass, but not as primed as you could have been, you know, floating with higher body fats. And it's not the higher body fats that are the benefit. It's that you didn't just kill yourself trying to diet that low, yeah. that you're so fatigued, so banged up, so injured, so burnt out on the formal process of everything that it's costing you. So that's basically where I'm at now. But just to reflect on it, the less massing and more cutting totally worked, right? So, and this is a, a question I get asked actually quite frequently is, if I am interested in being as big and lean as possible, but I'm currently on the fatter side of things, should I cut or should I mass? And the answer is you should do both regularly. You should go through the mass maintenance cut or the mass mini cut, mass mini cut, whichever you know model suits you best. 
just the same as everyone else. Your durations will change based on where you are. So if you're on the fatter side, you do shorter masses, longer cuts. Yeah. If you are on the leaner side, you do longer masses, shorter cuts, and everything in between. So that, you know, it, it, I think it's really ridiculous when people are like, yeah, I'm sitting between 15 and 20%. Should I just not do any massing phases until I'm down to 5%? I'm like, no, you could, you know, you need diet breaks anyway. You might as well use them to build some muscle mass. So it's still the same zigzag line. It's just which is, which is longer the zig or the zag is determined by how, how much body fat you're carrying. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, really interesting. And um, I think it's nice for people to hear that they can go through massing periods when they aren't necessarily in their prime position. But the fact is that massing period might not serve them in the best way for muscle growth, but it will serve them in other ways that is going to potentiate actual dieting in future in that I know, well, we all know for certain that having excess calories heals diet fatigue. Oh my God. Like nothing else. Like nothing else. So, no, that's really interesting. The only question I have for you, actually, Mike, and this is actually something I was going to ask on one of your posts, was when was the last time you did a maintenance phase? Because I know you're talking about doing these massing phases than the mini cuts, which are at lower volumes. Is How frequently can you get away with not doing a maintenance phase? How, how far can you put that off? I need one about every six months, personally. Some people may be able to go for longer. The last time I did was when I was in Australia in June. Um, I took about three weeks of really low volume training, just eating enough protein to keep my body weight relatively up, eating plenty of calories from whatever other fun foods I wanted. And I mean, I'm talking about I did sets of six. I do like three sets of six squats, two sets of six good mornings, three sets of 10 for calves. And that was a leg workout. I would just leave the gym, like bare minimum stuff. And that was after a show diet and a mass phase. And so I was like just completely burnt out. Um, that mass phase was when you and I met in the UK in May. Yeah. I was in the middle of that mass phase and you, you saw I was looking quite full. <laughs> so um, that was the, you know, and, I, and that I had been training without a maintenance phase for months at that point. And I just needed it. And of course, after I took the maintenance phase and came back, as predicted, everything fresh and new. After that maintenance phase, um, I took a mini cut actually to just prime my skills. I was a little bit on the higher body fat side. I was planning on doing a mini cut for uh, three to four weeks. Two and a half weeks later, I was like, okay, I can see striations in my fucking obliques and I work out here. <laughs> so um, I started massing and I started doing the super high carb, low fat mass for the first time ever. And this has worked wonders and it seems to have really worked. I've also made some changes to special sports supplements too, but I think that the low carb, high fat and, um, oh, sorry, uh, low fat, high carb enough folks have, that I know personally have tried it so far that it's, it's, it's really seems like it adds a little bit of that extra edge. Um, and I'll tell you what, one of the most impressive things about it is the low carb or low fat, high carb on a, on a mass heals diet fatigue like crazy because the amount of carbs I had to eat was as Broderick is quoted as saying oppressive. <laughs> um, I have meals. So my first post-workout meal is 200 grams of carbs usually. No. And that's just in, in like children's cereal. And you may think that's fun at first, but it should gets old really quick. And then just about an hour and a half later, it's 180 grams of carbs in usually in rice or noodles and, and beef or chicken. And I mean, that just stares you down, man. 
it's a fucking scary and uh, 650 grams of carbs per day for about two months that I did. I'm overreached right now. So my appetite's way down, but like the last week of massing, I was like, if I never have to eat a carb again, I'll be thanking God. And my mini cut is coming up now. I'm going to be doing like a three week mini cut at uh, like 400 grams of carbs. And usually I'd be like, Oh, mini cut shit. I want to eat this and that. I don't want to eat a fucking thing. Like I, my, my roommate, uh, Charlie and I, we like think about what to order at night when we're like eating junk food on our, our deload. And we just don't have any ideas because none of us want to eat any more fucking food. We're like, let's just skip a meal and just go to sleep. Uh, it's amazing. You know, with a high fat intake, you can eat peanut butter and still like want more. It's just only so much pasta and rice you can eat until you're like, we're done here. I, you know, I've never been, I could do a contest diet right now and probably just <laughs> walk right through it. Cause I'm so, and I, you know, like when you're really dieted down, probably like you right now, it's even hard to imagine how you could not want more pasta and rice. Yeah. Literally like a month ago, I couldn't imagine how that was possible. And now I couldn't imagine how it's possible for me to have ever wanted to eat carbohydrates. Like <laughs> it's pretty impressive and uh, super. So if you, you know, if, if, if individuals you have that are clients for anyone listening to this, you know, if they're really like some people after a diet have a hard time rebounding with hunger and you have to feed them more and more food and they start gaining weight, drop their fats, raise their carbs. They're not going to gain a whole lot of weight. It's going to be hard to gain weight and they're going to have to eat such a volume of food that it's just going to be oppressive. And after a while, they're going to be like, you know what? You win. I don't want to eat a lot of food anymore. So give that some thought as a pretty good anti-hunger tool. No, I mean, it, it's funny to me because I just went, I'm literally in peak week. So I'm competing this mm -hmm. Saturday. Um, and my first day was of loading was 750 grams of carbs and people look at that and they think that's hard. And I'm just like, that was easy. Like I'm oh, more yeah. worried about it coming down and like I'm on 400 grams of carbs today and I'm like, I want more, please. Like I'm eating too many totally. vegetables. My fiber's going too high just because like the, the hunger is still really hot. My energy levels are crazy good. Um, I'm sure. I fantastic. But, um, Do you feel yeah, warm, like warmer than usual? Um, actually... Maybe, um, not noticeably. My actual body temperature has been pretty good throughout this diet, which I think is credit to the kind of taking diet breaks and mm, doing that's it really good. sensibly. Yeah, um, because last time I was freezing cold, but yeah, I've been much better with all of that. But actually, that's at night, really at night I've noticed I wake up kind of like sweaty and like vascular, and I'm just like, thanks, oh. carbs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm looking forward after my show to actually do the, the low fat, high carb, like I did it kind of before, but not as kind of emphasized. So I'm looking forward Same to here. doing that after my show. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe even after this show this weekend, I'm kind of, I'm tinkering with things. I'm reversing kind of into my later finals, um, just re reducing the deficit basically, but it mm -hmm. might we'll see what happens because like you said the body just up, up regulates things and you don't get as hungry so hopefully totally. i may even get leaner into that show that would be um, sweet on that question actually in terms of when we're talking about high carb low fat oh mike you still hear me okay yep still there sorry oh, cool that's all right um so when we're talking about low fat how low are you going with your fats yeah so I'm, I have a friend help me cook my meals. And by that, I mean, I pay a friend to cook my meals because my cooking abilities are bordering on nothing. Um, and she's actually a trained professional chef. So 
she can make meals with macros that don't make any sense. Like one of my meals is noodles with some veggies and uh, ground beef. Tastes unbelievable, flavored and everything. Even it even's like it's juicy um, and, uh, and moist. It's not dry. And it's 50 protein, 180 grams of carbs, and only 10 grams of fat. So that makes very little sense. I took that to the extreme and just asked her to make the, the two daily meals that I eat that are like meat and, meat and grain kind of meals because uh, other, other ones are, you know, shakes and milk, like um, um, some other stuff and like cereal. Uh, um, so those meals, she made them just both 10 grams of fat. So I could, if I only ate those meals and had a casein shake at night, I was basically taking in something like 25 grams of fat per day. So I had a couple, I had one PR day kind of by accident where I ate 300 protein, 650 carbs and 25 grams of fat. Most days I would have somewhere between 30 and 45 grams of fat. Wow. Cause I would have like a slightly fattier meat as my last meal, super low. And uh, during the weekends, I would get one meal on Friday and one meal on Saturday that were junk food, anything I wanted. And to be honest, the amount of fat in those meals started to go down <laughs> with time every week because I was just less hungry to eat those meals. I'm like, fuck, like, I don't want three cheeseburgers. I just want a piece of pizza or something. And I would just have that and call that a day. So, uh, you know, my average weekly was probably between 45 and 60. And my average daily, um, if you don't count the super cheap meals, was between 30 and 45 grams of fat. Very low. Yeah. I'll tell you this. When I inch closer to 30 or under 30 for a couple of days, my sex drive would fall noticeably, even though I was hypercaloric and way in excess of my needs of protein and carbs. Also, for me, with special sports supplements, testosterone levels are not something I have to worry about. So I think this is really interesting, definitely not evidence, but uh, an interesting hypothesis that at least some uh, of the sex drive pathway is literally fat mediated and is not even hormonally mediated. So if you don't have enough dietary fat, it doesn't even matter what your hormones are doing. Your body's like, mm-mm-mm low sex drive, which talk to Broderick and, you know, we kind of arrange that it makes, you know, evolutionary sense because look, if, if, you know, if you're going to be reproducing, it needs to be during a time of plenty. And if you're eating less than 25 grams of fat per day, as like starvation levels of fat, you, you know, you, maybe the evolutionary logic there, your body's like, nah, I don't, I don't believe you that you're full. So we're just not going to do this. <laughs> so sex drive goes down. So that was an interesting side effect. But other than that, um, you know, on those days that, I only had 25 grams of fat. I was still barely able to shovel in the food because it was that much carbohydrate and protein. So. No, that's super interesting. I guess, um, would you say it's related to kind of a figure of body, uh, body weight? So like that's what, te- uh, just over like 10, 15% of your body weight, or 15%? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, we usually recommend you know, that you take in, so if it's grams, um, it should be 30% of your body weight. So, um, you know, so if you weigh 200 pounds, we say 60 grams of fat uh, should be the minimum. And, you know, I used to, when I, uh, when I initially 
uh, kind of published those guidelines on my social media and various books. Um, it was uh, most of the guidelines came from uh, kind of an examination of research, which is good. It's how they're supposed to be generated. And some of them came from my real world experience with clients and, you know, because some, some of the minima that people give you are really just exaggerated and then some of the recommendations are exaggerated. So you kind of know like, well, you don't actually need this much or well, this is really not enough. So now that I've done the experimenting myself with super duper low fat stuff, outside of the context of a hypocaloric diet, and let me be very clear about this. This is what I mean. People say, oh yeah, I just didn't have enough fat on my last you know, fat loss diet, and that's why I had all these negatives. Well, you didn't have enough carbs either. And by the way, you were in a 2,000 calorie deficit, so who the hell knows what it was? There's people say like, well, was it enough fat? Well, try eating 600 grams of carbs, being hypercaloric, and then you can tell me if you know, it's the fat was the problem. Yeah. Sometimes it really just wasn't. So, and because I've, I've actually experimented with higher fat dieting, but still super low calories, you still feel like shit. You're like, well, hold on, I'm eating enough fat. Like, well, it doesn't matter. Your calorie, I mean, you know, I'll just make this a very clear statement. Maybe we'll snip it out and put it on Facebook later. Calories are the number one cause, consequence, and correlate of training, performance, and hormonal function by a long shot. If you're eating a eucaloric, isocaloric diet, almost everything's going to be good no matter how wacky your other numbers get. But if you take your calories and cut them by like 60%, I don't give a shit how many grams of fat or carbs or whatever you still manage to smash in there, shit's going to be bad. You're not going to be feeling great. <laughs> so after this experiment multiple times, and actually Jared, I was keeping in touch with Jared who went in into these low numbers of fats too. We both noticed the same thing that for most people in most circumstances, that 0.3 number really is probably pretty good. Um, Broderick himself told me, because, you know, we were arranging the low-fat diet. I was like, what does that mean exactly? He's like, look, basically, um, I want you a gram of fat per kilogram of body weight and no more. That's officially low-fat. Cool. That means for me, it's like 110 grams of fat per day, yeah. right? That's a lot. And I was like, I, you know, and I asked him, I was like, is it the less fat I can have, the better? And he's like, to a point, yes. So I was like, well, fuck this. I'm going lower. And I did, and it worked out great because I could have that many more carbs, yeah. right? But, um, you know, the, on the downside was I found out that that 0.6, which is for me would be like in something like 80 grams of fat, fats around, or sorry, 0.4, or 0.3, so for me, 80 grams of fat or so, that number really is for most people and most times a pretty good cutoff. Anything lower than that, I'll put it this way, I'll put it in a sort of logical structure. I can't guarantee that you'll feel bad or have poor training or poor hormonal profile if you go below 0.3 grams on a regular training uh, situation average. But I can't guarantee that you'll be okay. Does that make sense? Anything above 0.3 and I'm like, you'll be fine. So some people are like, I'm eating 80 grams of fat, but I still feel like I need more fat. Like, no, you fucking don't. Okay. I'm sorry. There's no re re rationale for that's very unlikely. And some people can go um, even lower, like, you know, um, uh, Kate Ann, Kate Giovino from, from Facebook. She's been super low fatting, way lower than that. And she thinks it's great. I just, I don't think everyone's like that. So I think a lot of people, you know, so when people say, like, what's the lowest I should dip my fats? I start the conversation at 0.3 grams per pound of body weight per week, uh, per day and say like, anything lower than that, just keep your eyes open and, and don't go lower for a long time without expecting some things to be wacky. What do you think about that? What's the lowest you've gone? Um, the lowest I've, I haven't actually really dipped much below 45 grams or 40 grams, even during, like during my dieting. Um, not really sure why, apart from, yeah, I used the 0.3 per pound mm -hmm. as my kind of 
lower end. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but it might be something I trial. Um, after this show now, I'm thinking about kind of at bringing, trying to reverse calories up slightly. And actually, if I do that mainly via carbohydrates, then that's only going to be a good thing and what I was aiming for anyway. So uh, a lot of the time, I think it does just come down to, and I remember an old podcast where I think Kate Ann even asked the question of how low can we go with fats and kind of, um, we talked about massing on like low fats and you were like, that's insane. No one could gain uh, weight on that low fat intake. Um, you just be it's hard. Yeah. I, I imagine it is. And I think it just comes down to preference and I guess you having those two kind of cheat meals on the, on the weekends kind of keeps you sane somewhat. Um, and then I guess during your deloads as well, you're kind of, are you allowing fats? Absolutely, because I have to keep my body weight up, but I don't want to smash carbohydrates when there's no insulin funnel, basically. And again, if my training is not making me very insulin sensitive because it's very low volume, why the hell would I have that much carbohydrate? And also, you know, the more carbohydrate you have over the long term, the more insulin resistant you become. So why not reduce that process a little bit during a deload and then next massing phase come up again? And the last benefit is psychological. I mean, that amount of carbohydrate, like I said, is oppressive. So if you could just have some tastier foods, more fats, fewer carbs, you just feel fresher at the end of your deload. And, and now mind you, this is something very, very clear. I have to, every time I started talking about this, I, I see this potential for misinterpretation. During my deload, I lower my carbs, but never to below what is necessary to replete glycogen and to fuel the restorative process. So, you know, my carbs at, you know, 650, 700 grams, that's coming close to three times body weight for grams of carbs per day. On a deload, I'm down to maybe two times body weight or one and a half times body weight, which by any account in bodybuilding is still a high carb diet. But at the very least, it's plenty of carbs. I, when I say I'm lowering my carbs and raising my fats on a deload, I don't mean to say that I'm eating 300 grams of fat and lowering my carbs to 150 grams. This is not what I'm doing. So before that gets misinterpreted, I definitely like to say that because, you know, because I, I know and I've already gotten an inkling of this. It's like, well, you said that you should keep your carbs plenty on a deload to replete glycogen, but here you are slashing carbs. I'm not slashing my carbs. I'm just taking them down back to sane levels versus the really crazy super levels during a high carb mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And I guess the only other thing I might say to listeners is that I'm assuming you're also either taking it. Well, actually, it sounds like you probably supplement with uh, central fatty acids, acids like omega threes, yep. omega six. Take them every day. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good idea yeah. when you go down to the lower ends. Yeah, just in case. Yeah, why not? Um, especially when you're like, well, I guess the only reason why not is you're like, oh, I have to take six grams of my 20 grams of pro, uh, fats to this. And now it's like, what can I eat that's actually got any fat in it? Um, For sure. Just a, a tiny amount of oats. Uh, so yeah. we're basically coming to the hour now. So I don't want to keep you on too much longer. Uh, we have actually even got some questions in the bank, which is amazing. But I think we had some really good in-depth discussions on the questions that we did get, uh, which is really great. And uh, hopefully the listeners submitting them. Um, and I want to thank Mike for coming on the show again. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Mike. Steve, pleasure for having me. And we'll continue to do this as long as I'm able to speak and have intelligent things to say. Have you got anything you need to make the listeners aware of? I know you're still doing, um, I mean, I caught two weekly webinars, I think, last week uh, or very recently on RP Plus. So RP Plus is still going. Um, anything else? RP Plus is a giant party. So here's the deal. Um, RP Plus, um, you know, when you guys send your questions to Steve and I, we take care of a lot of really great theoretical questions. 
we only do this maybe once every two weeks, once every three, and we can't get to everyone's questions for sure. And we might get to your question like two months after you posted it because there's a bit of a queue. So it's great for general learning and it's really replaceable for that. But if you guys really need more direct questions answered, both about deep theory and about your own training, Dr. James Hoffman and I, every week on RP Plus, which is only 20 bucks a month, uh, do a webinar. And currently, the number of people that tune in, there's a, a lot of people watch the webinars later, but the number of people that tune into any particular webinar is just like under 20 people. And we have an hour, and now we're probably expanding it to an hour and a half. We will almost certainly answer your question in depth. So if you really like the question answer format, give it some thought. In addition, RP Plus, tons of unique videos, tons of online courses, a whole forum where experts answer all of your questions that you have about templates of ours that you might be using or diets that you've been running, all this great stuff for 20 bucks a month. Give it some thought. And if it's not for you, no worries. We'll see you everywhere else. But if you really want like the next level of insight, give RP Plus some thought. No, I definitely, I mean, there'll be links below for you guys to have and like go and sign for. And um, I mean, straight up, we are luckily to be affiliated with RP Plus. So we will get a bit of a bonus there as well, which is always oh, nice. But I mean, I'd, I'd support you guys no matter what. Um, and I have to say, I love the webinars, but that's just touching the surface um, because if people have read the books, basically there's, there's, over chapters of the book but in greater depth explained by james and i mean james is smarter than mike anyway so you want him for the q a and i can never get james on the show <laughs> yeah um if you tried to consume all of the content we have at rp plus it would take a lot of your week to actually get through so it's one of those things that we post content faster than most people can can take it in and we archive everything so right now there's like i don't know 30 or 40 like 45 minute long videos about entire courses of content and we're always growing always building in a year there's going to be entire courses that are, are basically just undergraduate courses in exercise science and various subjects already posted so it's really a gold mine for 20 bucks a month i you know i really don't like people i don't like talking people into buying stuff if that seems appealing to you come check us out if it doesn't no worries we'll see you other places and the final plug is the london seminars are there as well and exclusive to rp plus that's right so, oh my god oh my god so steve i gotta tell you people have been raving about that like oh, they'll asking um people have been asking about um they also they saw the London lectures on RP Plus, and every time they ask, like, well, on the London lectures, you said this and that, and asked me to explain it further, or Steve said this and that, and then I'm supposed to try to explain your shit further, and I'm like, I think Steve meant that. So um, every time they say that, they also say they're like, by the way, that was amazing. I can't believe Steve. How long are the London lectures in total? Um, I actually don't. They're hours in length, so it's like four and a half hours or something yeah. like that. It's absurd. They're like, I can't believe this is on here. Um, so the London lecture is just like tons of content, and people have been super hyped. Um, we I just did a seminar that's multiple hours long up in Canada. That's going to be an RP plus. Awesome. Basically, we're getting into the situation where most seminars, maybe like half that I do anywhere will be posted a couple months later on RP+. Yeah, and it's no time. replacement to going to the seminars, mind There's you. not, because yeah. you, <laughs> you can ask questions in, in live form and see how bad my body odor really is. 
But other than that, um, RP Plus is a great place. If you can't make a seminar in your area, RP Plus is a, is a great way to, to catch up to that stuff. Awesome. We'll leave you there, guys. I think we've sold you enough on that and hopefully we'll catch you soon. So thank you for listening.